Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, TV, other podcasts. And this week, another look back at the supposedly closed case of a serial killer targeting the African-American community. We'll review Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children from HBO. Plus, is a coven of witches behind a string of deaths in London? We'll discuss the latest TV adaptation of Agatha Christie's The Pale Horse. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and social distancing exception, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Muchos gracias. What is it? What? Bienvenido. I don't know. I'm trying to... Trying to do what? Spice it up. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've certainly accomplished that. Yeah. Great. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. We almost had a crime this week because my cat attacked me when I was doing yoga. (laughs) (laughs) He started eating my hair when I was in Downward Dog, and it was very disturbing. Yeah. Nice. Well, you need to get a puppy who literally tries to eat your hair every four seconds. (laughs) And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, the king of being disappointed by what's in the kitchen, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, just got done recording the deep dive, as a matter of fact. You did, and then you went I did. and looked for a little snack, huh? I did. I found some, uh, you know. You found some disappointment. There's a certain sameness to what I'm discovering in my kitchen day after day. <laughs> it's so funny because I'm just like listening to the start of the show, like through my producer's ears in addition to hosting it. And we got like the meanest podcast review last week. I think I tweeted about it, but on my Instagram, uh-huh. they basically talked about my like intrusive and grating laughter and, oh, yeah. saying, and uh, saying like, we, we clearly don't have good content because all I do is laugh nervously. I'm like, hey, I'm not nervous, but whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, we're starting, yeah. the, we're starting this show. And I'm like, no, he's totally freaking right because I'm so fascinated by Toby's snacks. I know. And I'm sure this is exactly what that dude was talking about. Sorry, dude, you're right. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have tweeted derisively, Brian Goulet, about your Apple <laughs> Podcast <laughs> review. Oh, my god. You're clearly right. Toby, I want to hear more about your kitchen ennui. How are you? And how is it expressing itself by what is or isn't in your kitchen between podcast tapings? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's just, it's not just between podcast tapings. It's 24 7. Oh, man. You know, recently I've, I've tried to change my diet before the whole COVID thing. And this, Good luck. Is, this has made it <laughs> yeah. a lot harder. But uh, I started yeah. eating like veggie burgers, like the. Uh, oh. 
The Impossible Burger um, things? No, 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 no. Not those. Just like the the ones that you can get like from, you know, whatever Morningstar Farms or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know what they're made out of. So I've been <laughs> I've been eating those and now I just look at those. I'm like, Jesus. Like really? More of that? <laughs> and uh it's just like all these things that I started eating and seemed like kind of new and exciting when I was changing my diet are now like, my God. It's only been like three months and I can't stand like the look of any of this stuff anymore. Like for lunch, I had uh, mozzarella cheese and crackers and a Werther's hard, hard candy for dessert. Oh, man. And then I Tell went me. to get an orange, but it had been sitting out for a little too long. So I had to throw that away. Uh-huh. Breakfast at Champions. Yeah. So it's been, you know, that's, that's what's going on here. Listen, Toby, right before I came out of the studio, I took a nap, which was a horrible mistake. And then to try to wake myself up, I did get another sleeve of frozen Thin Mints. Which was oh, my God. I love the Thin Mints. They're bite sized, Rebecca. They're really bite sized. They're delicious. Well, Toby, I'm I'm going to make you jealous. I had a delicious lunch today. Uh-oh. What did you have? I had uh, some Mexican food from the Las Olas. This place in our town is doing an amazing job. You go on the website, you order what you want, you put in the make and model of your car, you pull up, you put your mask on, they come out, they have your mask, their mask on, and they hand you the food and you drive away. Nice. Really? I may drive there. I know where that is. <laughs> Toby, <laughs> if they added margaritas. Laura, yesterday I had the first food I've had that wasn't something from our house in like weeks. I went to... Uh, NHPR to be on their call and talk show last night and so I went there early to do some work and then I you know it's like two hours before the show so I went to this takeout sushi place in Concord that I love Splendid Sushi hats off to Splendid Mm -hmm. Sushi and um, it was so ridiculously apocalyptic I called in my order I walked in there was a sheet of plastic all around the counter (laughs) like (laughs) Like walking into one of those like old school like 1970s grocery store freezers like this like plastic that they have hanging there. And so you go in and everyone in there is like, you know, all like masked and gloved up and they hand you your food through the plastic and like they don't touch your container. You can see them like putting on their gear. And then for the credit card machine, they have these little toothpicks stuck into a styrofoam ball so you take out a toothpick and you push the buttons on the credit card machine with oh, a toothpick. God. And the third I was actually I thought incredibly clever. But I yeah. ate that sushi. I enjoyed it as much as anyone has ever enjoyed a bite of food in my entire life. I was hey. like, this is not uh, the same shredded wheat and leftover meatloaf that I've been eating for like two weeks. Ain't no sushi like coronavirus sushi. That's right. That's right. How are you doing, Kevin? Are you holding up okay? I'm fine. I've got a great roommate. You do? Yeah, and you're here too. <laughs> Thank you for prompting me to laugh again, making Brian Goulet leave yet another so one-star review on our podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, before we start the show, a quick bit of business. We've got a lot going on on Patreon, but Kevin, most importantly, who is our Patreon patron saint of the week this week? Well, we have two. One is Janessa Retzer. Yes. And the other is Megan Warbolowski. Wow. Those are some mouthful names. Good for you for getting those out. Plus, we have two super patron patron saints who have offered to give away three subscriptions to Patreon for folks who maybe can't swing it at this difficult time. I can't believe that some of our listeners think our Patreon is so good that they are gifting our Patreon to other listeners. That's wonderful. It's better than toilet paper. (laughs) Is it? Is it? (laughs) I mean, well, technically. (laughs) 
So, Toby, right before we started taping the show tonight, you were taping a Patreon deep dive book club podcast. What the heck was that about? Oh, I don't know. It's just like a book club. <laughs> <laughs> it was the uh, it was the suspect, which is the uh, story about Richard Jewell and the Atlanta bombing. Yes, and we had another all star panel of uh, Meg Heckman. Uh, of mm. Radio Free Dystopia fame, but she also does other things. And she's got a cool book about Naki Loeb about to come out. Yep. And uh, Keith Sharon. Yeah. From the Orange County Register. Register. Yeah, he's wonderful. And uh, Bill Rankin, of course. Oh, my God. Bill Rankin was on the Deep Dive Book Club. Yeah. Wow. About, and he's, and he's, He's in the book, like, a lot. <laughs> As a character? Yes. He's getting all kind of sex. What? Yeah, he's like the sexy reporter. Oh, he's the one, like, from the movie? Who was yeah. That? <laughs> he's getting it in with everybody. No, he wasn't. Hi, I'm Bill Rankin. <laughs> I'm hung like a horse. <laughs> no, he wasn't. That was not him, and that was not real. That was a thing they make Clint Eastwood made up for that stupid movie. What? Who? What? In the Clint Eastwood Richard Jewell movie, they there, there was a female reporter who's now dead. Right. And in the movie, they made it that she was like sleeping with a source, which is right. how she got the story, which was not true. But uh, Bill actually sat back to back with her in the newsroom. Oh. And knew her oh. quite well. And did he defend her honor on your book club podcast? Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he was like, she was a she was a great reporter. Yeah. She could just get stories. So it's a good conversation. Like Bill's got a lot of inside stuff, but all three of them. I think a lot of good insight about journalism and newspapers and about how the journal constitution covered the story. I, I don't know. I, th- I I think I think people will get quite a bit out of it. Hopefully you listen. Let me know what you think. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to be recording it. And I got I got a lot out of it myself. So. That's awesome. So people should sign yeah. up for our Patreon for that. You should. They should also sign up because on today's Patreon after show, which is dropping at the same time as this podcast, so it's available now, we are discussing the bonus episode of The Tiger King called... The Tiger King and I, which dropped on oh, Netflix, <laughs> <laughs> which was really just, let's face it, a crime writers on after show about the Tiger King. Anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about that on the Patreon after show. So lots of reasons to join Patreon, Kevin, not the least of which is that you are now holding video cocktail parties there. Oh, yeah. 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 It's how, how you roll. It's how, how I roll. Listen, we've got nothing to eat but frozen Thin Mints in our house. You may as well. <laughs> <laughs> wonder what Brian Goulet would think of that coming to your <laughs> Patreon video chat show. I mean, is that a, a nom de guerre for somebody whose name rhymes with that? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Okay. Brian Goulet. Or is it, just a, is it just a fun coincidence? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But he hates me. That's cool. <laughs> and he'll get over it. There's also a two-part Leave it to Bricker that has some tips for those of you who are struggling with survival tips right now. Apparently the tip, the key tip is Put your health in the hands of people who make takeout food that you can bring to yes. your house. <laughs> totally worth it, apparently. <laughs> yep. That's it. That's All it. All right. All right. Well, let's get started with the show, shall we? Because I don't really get what we're about to talk about, so we may as well get started. Get, get to it. Do you two know each other? No, not at all. But you know each other's names. Mark Easterbrook and Zachariah Osborne. No. Um. What is this? Why am I here? A woman's body was discovered this morning. We believe you had a connection to her. To Jessie, because of her list. It's 1960s London and a woman dies under mysterious circumstances. In her possession is a list of names. Some on that list are dead, but are the rest in danger? Dun dun. (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) It's their sign. It means they're coming. 
Who's coming? The witches. The witches? They pretend it's just herbs and fortunes and seances. That's how they got Jesse involved. But it's the devil's work they do in much deeping. Antiques dealer Mark Easterbrook doesn't know why he's on the list. His search for answers takes him to a village where three fortune tellers live in the converted Pale Horse Inn. Do they have something to do with the accidental death of his first wife? No. (laughs) (laughs) We're not who you think we are. What if all we do is read cards and tea leaves? Deliver babies. Set a broken limb. Make a salve for your creaky knees, your wheezy chest. What if that's all we can do? You do other things. You have particular abilities. The two-part adaptation of The Pale Horse from BBC One and Amazon Prime veers from Agatha Christie's novel, keeping its supernatural overtones, but leaning more on domestic suspense than its murder-for-hire origins. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points from The Pale Horse, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes, but I'm going to give you a hot tip. Even though we're revealing plot points from this thing, it doesn't really matter. So, <laughs> Kevin? Yes. Excuse my language right up front. What the answer is I don't know. Fu- <laughs> what the fuck was going on in this the pale horse? I felt like the whole time I was watching this like I was in some weird fever dream. Was I alone? I uh, know you were actually in a fever dream. <laughs> um, I mean, it's supposed to be one of Agatha Christie's like better later books, right? It's de- it was written in the 60s. And it doesn't have, you know, the feel of a Hercule Poirot uh, story. But I think that uh, this is the latest in a series of adaptations the BBC has done. And this one is, is you know, f- much farther from the source material than uh, any of the other ones. Now, Laura, you are the one who made us watch this. Yeah. Why? Why did you do that, Laura Bricker? Okay, so it's a two-part thing. So I watched the first episode, and I thought, hey, this is interesting. It seemed like a really interesting period mystery. I didn't quite understand what was going on, but I was like, well, (laughs) the guy's handsome. It's kind of (laughs) interesting. The name of the town is kind of weird. So I think I recommended it after I'd watched episode one. And, Mm. you know, because I thought it's all going to tie together, hopefully, at the end. Mm. But... (laughs) <laughs> then I had to look up but what the true. ending meant. So, yeah. um, but I do. I did like the setting. I liked the the creepy little village. I liked the car he drove. I don't know. I just I liked some of the the setting and I liked the characters. But I just, if you watch the first episode, I think you aren't expect. You're, you're kind of hoping that there's going to be some sort of a resolution that sort of rewards you for watching this. And you also like the actress who played his wife, who was the lead in the show Spinning Out on Netflix, the ice skating thing, which was terrible, by the way, but I ended up watching it because I was bored. I watched that too. I didn't, yeah, she actually was really, I thought she played her role really, really well in this. And I loved, I think one of the best scenes in this entire show was when she's like imagining clubbing this other woman over the head with a leg of lamb Mm, yes i just i loved that scene well of course that's how ken says if he's ever going to kill me that's what he's going to do yeah because he's going to like then cook the leg of lamb eat it and there'll be no evidence (laughs) toby your first note about the pale horse says this was kind of silly what do you mean by that I, i don't even know really where to begin i don't know who would have read that book if it's anything like this and thought this would be great to make a TV show out of because, you know, all, all this stuff has kind of been done before. Like they they do lean 
and it turns out not to have much to do with anything, but they they do lean on this like creepy village with like these weird sort of pagan harvest festival things. Like the Wicker weird, Man, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's been done and, and there's been a few others. And I just kind of feel like it's pretty cliched at this point. And in this particular instance, it really doesn't have much to do with anything. It's mm. like window dressing. Mm. It's got this very tangential uh, thing to do with the plot where he gets these creepy little straw dolls left in around his car or one, one time a dead rabbit, I guess. So I, I just, the whole thing was just bizarre. Like the beginning doesn't make a ton of sense. And then, you know, it, it can go one of two ways, I thought, which is it can be like this weird supernatural witch thing, or that can just be a front for something more Agatha Christie-ish, which is somebody's a murderer and they have some devious plot. And there's really only one suspect in the entire show. So it's like, oh, well, it's probably that guy, mm. which it turns out to be. So... When it was all over, it 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 looks good. The acting's pretty good. I think maybe if I just not watched it with any sound on and could have made up my own plot <laughs> to go along with it, it may have been more enjoyable. Toby do his own dialogue. Mm. So it's like if we could do like a mystery science theater version of watching this, which is like the four of us sitting in front of a screen, like making up what's going on on the screen as it's going on, that would be better than what this actually was. Is that what you're saying, Toby? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. (laughs) So, Laura, you talked earlier, you alluded to the fact that you were confused about what things meant and that you had to go online to read an explanation of the ending. But even with that, it isn't really exactly clear. I mean, we do get this is deep spoiler. I mean, one of the things that we know in the show is that Mark's first wife died uh, under allegedly accidental circumstances. And then we learn that that's not true. What else was confusing to you that you didn't quite get? Well, I think, you know, you're, you're watching that. It's like throughout the whole thing, I'm thinking, oh, she killed herself because that's sort of the way that it is being portrayed. And then, and you know, he's having these sort of recurring nightmares about the day she died. So you're like, oh, he's having these recurring nightmares because she killed herself and he found her. And then you find out, oh, no, accidentally... He killed her in a jealous rage because he thought she was cheating on him when she went to the weird village. So, but the part is like at the end, I'm like, was he actually dead the whole time throughout the whole show? And he is like reliving the like end of his life. Is he like, what? A, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. no, I seriously, no, I seriously at the end, I thought, was it actually his? Because you see at the end, he gets the newspaper that's talking oh. about his death, antiques dealer's death. And so I was like, Oh, wait a minute. So are we supposed to think that maybe he's the one who died in the bathtub? Or then I'm like, wait a minute. So then his second wife was, she was poisoned by the guy, the creepy guy with the glasses and the teeth. But she woke up and the witches were there. And did they kill him? Or did they put a hex on him? I don't know what was going on. I think that's where it was. It's like, if this had just ended with the creepy guy with the glasses who he clubbed over the head with the wrench being the killer... That would have been a fine ending. But then they went in this like supernatural sort of direction where I think that's where it sort of lost me. Kevin, what about you? What do you think of the idea of, you know, injecting so much of the supernatural into what the show ultimately kind of wants us to think is some sort of murder mystery? Yeah, I mean, I just felt like I never got my bearings in, in this uh, two-part movie. You know, it's like, you know, the plot shouldn't be like laid out perfectly in the first opening scene. And you should, it should be kind of revealed bit by bit, but I don't. F- I still feel like the parts were 
so disparate and they really didn't gel at all. Mm. Yeah, because it's it it is a little more supernatural, spooky, and not a murder mystery, or it doesn't feel like a murder mystery. It doesn't have sort of that same vibe. I kept saying like, this is Agatha Christie wrote this. Yeah, he said it is very different from the book, and that in the in the book, uh, Mark Easterbrook is not on that list, and there's a whole other like. The police detective has a much larger role, and he's not Mark isn't married, and so like they do like a whole bunch of different things. Where I guess they try to if we put him into the story and give him a little more skin in the game, it ratchets up the tension. But I don't know, it just it just got really weird. I thought the casting of the three witches and that whole thing was so stupid. I mean, they were sort of like uh, archetypes of witches. You sort of had like the voodoo priestess. You had like the old hag witch. And then you had like the um, prescient like fortune teller witch, you know. I thought it was really stupid. And I know it was supposed to be creepy. I didn't find it creepy. I didn't find the village creepy. And I think it's hard to do a scene, even if it's been done a million times before, where you go to a creepy little village and they're having a harvest festival and those little kids marching down the streets in masks like zombies. Like, that's inherently creepy. It just wasn't. I don't know. It yeah, just wasn't. It, w- it wasn't clear sort of like why the whole town yeah, why? was so why? off. You know, it did because it didn't, ended up not really fitting with anything. <laughs> it's true. It's true. What was the name of the town? Something's deep. Much deeper. What was oh, it? Much, it was, yeah. much, much deeping. Much deeping. That's right. Had a lot of much deeping going on here. Yeah, I just. Mm. that I, I Actually, that was the town Agatha Christie, the name she settled on. Really? Much deeping? Yes. Yeah, for some reason. Well, all that being said, and as brief as that review was, as the series is also maybe blessedly brief, let's give our thumbs up, our thumbs down review. Should our listeners check out The Pale Horse on Amazon Prime? Laura Bricker's pick for us to review this week. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this could have been intriguing show from Amazon Prime and Agatha Christie. What do you think? Well, I'm I'm going with thumbs sideways because... I want people to watch this because I want to hear some more theories on what the hell people think actually happened in this and what the ending means. And I want some more takes on this from other people to see what their reactions are. So also, it's nice scenery. The guy's handsome. He is. He is. Well, he was in. I'm just uh, what's Man, the show he was that in? That my review. Man yeah, in the High Castle. That's right. I don't get out much these days, so that's that's what I'm going to say about it. <laughs> Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Pale Horse on Amazon Prime? I'm kind of intrigued by Laura's idea about you give your review based on what you want people to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'm thinking I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it a thumbs up because I want other people to watch it huh. and then we can bitch about it together on mm-hmm. social media. <laughs> yeah. But I mean I it was bizarre and pointless and I, I still just kinda can't wrap my mind around why they made it. So I'm gonna give it a thumbs down. But a thumbs up uh, at the same time. But if you wanna take my thumbs down as a thumbs up and watch it anyway, mm. You know, I, I'm thinking more about this review than it deserves. Yeah. So, <laughs> thumbs down. Kevin Flynn? Thumbs down. <laughs> That's it? There we go. You know, apparently it's a, it's very well-regarded source material. You think you can't go wrong with Agatha Christie, but it doesn't feel like there's any essence of the author in this adaptation. Yeah, I mean, is it supposed to be Murder Incorporated, or is it supposed to be The Omen? I don't know. Hmm. They really sort of didn't settle on either. And I guess it just says a lot if in the end uh, Laura is like, send me your ideas about 
what happened in the ending? <laughs> I, I think that probably sign. it probably sends it all says it all, right? I just can't believe you were only confused by the ending, Laura. I was confused the entire time I watched this. And I watch a lot of bizarre things that like, you know, are can be confusing. Uh I have no idea how this made it through the development and production process and ended up being this. I really don't. It's really well cast. There's like some really talented actors in it. I believe it was number five of a five title project. Hmm. I honestly just don't know how this made it through the production process. I mean, it's like there had to have been many, many points either from the production company or the studio or like the executives at Amazon who then later watched it and decided to pick it up. Why didn't somebody say this needs more work? It makes no sense. We have no idea what's going on. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. This is basically watching a a fever dream. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't know how it made it to this point. It's a disaster in every regard, except Lara's right. The guy is kind of handsome. So, yeah, I'm giving it a big thumbs down. But I also I have so many questions and I do want people to watch it so they can also have those questions, too. So thumbs down. We're laying a trap. But please watch it and let us know if there's something that we missed or if it is as junky yeah, as plot. we all think it was. So, yes, thumbs down for me. Please watch it anyway. Moving on. The Atlanta child murders from 40 years ago are back in the headlines as investigators now plan to re-examine the evidence. The man detectives believe is responsible is serving two life sentences, but he was never tried on any of the child murders. In the 1970s, Atlanta was enjoying an economic and cultural resurgence, the self-dubbed, quote, city too busy to hate. But in 1979, African-American boys began disappearing from its streets. We did not know that other children were missing until they found a body. There were also two other boys that were missing. But we didn't know that. Over a three-year period with dozens of children murdered, police arrested Wayne Williams and charged him with two of the deaths. Though they considered the case closed, questions remained if Williams was solely responsible for all the killings, some which don't match in manner, mode, or target. I understand why the city handled it the way they did and wanted it to go away, because the result of how they handled it is this beautiful city that we have today. In the latest revisiting of the crimes, Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children from HBO tugs at the threads of the Wayne Williams case, featuring interviews with investigators, journalists, academics, community leaders, and victims' relatives. The series is part historical and cultural retrospective, part investigation into the system, perhaps too quick to put the case behind them. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Atlanta's Missing and Murdered. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, the show does do this big setup of the place of Atlanta at this particular period in history. I'm curious, what do you think of that setup, Toby Ball? Does it work to sort of give us a sense of the place in the way that they did it in this show? So I thought the setup, it, it went on really long, and it's that part of the show where generally I think we're used to documentaries kind of laying out kind of what they're going to cover and sort of throwing down. It's not really a thesis statement, but sort of a, a statement of uh, scope. 
And they set themselves up to do quite a bit there. And and I think, and, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I'm concerned that they don't have a sense of exactly what they want to be. And I, I think they have ambitions to be something more along the lines of uh, the OJ documentary for ESPN, which was really like almost a sociological look at it at an era beyond just following the OJ story. And I feel like there are hints that that's what they want to do here, but they don't have a whole lot of time to do all that stuff in. You know, they sort of check off a few of those things, but without really, really jumping into it in any kind of depth. Mm. And plus it just goes on. Like mm. there was a point at which I was just like, series is just going to be like this, mm. like rapid fire, like going from thing to thing really quickly. Um, it, it didn't really set off warning bells or whatever, but I did when that the initial sort of barrage of stuff was over. I was like, my God, they're they're going to try and do all this stuff in five hours. Right. So that, that's kind of where I was at that point. Laura, what did you think of the snapshot of Atlanta that we saw at the beginning of this series? Well, I thought it was interesting, um, you know, kind of setting the context of, you know, sort of what the political scene was there, that this was, you know, politically, this was a progressive place for, you know, aspiring black politicians and, you know, people were moving there. And I thought they did a good job of sort of contrasting that with this sort of wealth disparity between, you know, the people that were living on like 2400 a year or whatever it was to the people that were, you know, making a living. And but, it you know, like like Toby was saying, I, I definitely felt like it's like they had all the information and they were going to use all the information and all the clips and all the people that we had. And so for me, I found it hard to sort of follow the storyline a little bit after a while. I mean, I did think it was interesting and I thought it was good to start there setting the scene. But there was just so many different people that I didn't feel like I could sort of latch on to any one person that they were, you know, talking to, except I was like strangely mesmerized by that lady's fingernails. And I was just Mm. like, (laughs) wow, I'm like... (laughs) Does she, how can she do anything with those? Fi- but, and then I was like, okay, clearly that was a sign that like I needed something else to latch onto if that's what I remember. Um, so I just felt like, I mean, they did have people that continued to narrate, but it just went, there was a lot of information jam packed in there. Kevin, I felt like there was something missing from the beginning of this documentary. Aside from, you know, I do think the scene setting is, you know, relatively strong. I think mm-hmm. it's necessary to have like sort of the political context, the socioeconomic context, because, you know, later it does get into issues that touch on those things. But you know what was missing? What happened was missing. From yeah. Me. Yeah. You know, like when you go to a, a restaurant and you sit down and they immediately start bringing you food. Yes. Whether you ordered it or not. And you just, you don't really get a chance. I thought you liked that when they did that at restaurants. Well. <laughs> Maybe that's not a good comparison for you. Well, <laughs> it just was all sort of coming without any kind of break. I felt like that this episode needed an episode before it mm. to set up what was in the, in the first episode. Yeah. Because it was a bit disorienting. The pace is like really fast with a lot of people commenting uh, one after another. And it feels like it needs a couple of beats so you pause on something important. So as a viewer, you understand that was important as opposed to kind of zipping by it. And so I think there's a lot there now. I, st- I do like it, but I do think that the pacing is a little fast. I, how about this? If you don't know what the case is, if you don't already come to it with some sort of historical knowledge of who Wayne Williams was and of all these deaths, 
I think you're going to feel like you're, you're watching the beginning of The Pale Horse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, what I, is going on? I totally agree with you because, you know, I do think the filmmakers here make an assumption that everybody watching this knows all the details of the case. And we have now, in the last year or so, reviewed two things that cover the Atlanta Child Murders. One of them was Monster, the podcast, and the other one was season two of Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to Atlanta Monster, the podcast, and the same with the um, Zodiac one that mm-hmm. they also did at Tenderfoot, and thinking like, okay, this, the beginning of it was actually really good. Episode one. Yeah. Because they actually said, like, here's what happened. This happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then when they go on all these other tangents, because they're not assuming that everybody who's entering the story knows the story. It happened in 1979 and 1980. I'm a 46-year-old woman. I was six years old in 1979. I think the vast majority of podcast listeners listening to something like Atlanta Monster are a lot younger, and they correctly did that whole you know narrative unspooling of what happened. And that's missing in this documentary. And I kept waiting I, with all the scene setting. I'm like, okay, they're going to do this, and then they're going to start showing a montage of headlines or putting a graph on the screen that says, you know, in 1979, this happened and this happened. But they didn't. And I wasn't confused because I know the story, but I found myself confused for other potential viewers of the story. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that none of that is missing. Like all those things, they're there. Yeah, they're just in pieces. Yeah, and and but they just keep coming so quick quickly that you don't hear, you know, it's like speed reading. Yeah. Now, one of the things, Toby, is they do um, try to get into sort of like a lot of the politics of the era in, in, a new, in numerous ways. Um, you know, they sort of talk about the relationship between the powers that be in Atlanta. They talk about the political landscape at the time, the socioeconomic differences, the um, you know potential corruption and malfeasance of the police department. How do you think the series is doing? Because I think this is what they're trying to do. I really do think this is a, this the attempt is to be a look at you know sort of sort of a cultural picking apart that sheds light on a different part of the story that has sort of larger implications. What do you think? Do you think that's handled well in this documentary, Toby? Well, I, I mean, I don't want to like cast final judgment not having watched the whole thing. But again, I, th- I think that's what I was talking about before. Was there? I, I feel like they have these ambitions to to do just that. And I kind of feel like you have to infer a lot of what's going on or you have to really be looking for it. Like, I thought some of the most interesting stuff was seeing how the neighborhood where these kids were disappearing from, sort of their reaction to Maynard Jackson, who's the first, you know, African-American mayor of a major city in the U.S., I believe. And it's, it's, it's pretty hostile, you know? I mean, they're not, they're not happy with the way things are going. You know, I don't know if they'll go into sort of this this weird position that he f- he was in, where they're trying to put forward this this vision of Atlanta uh, as the New South and the 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 city too busy to hate and all that stuff. And he's he's really trying to walk this this line by keeping you know wealthy, mostly white businesses happy and in town while also confronting this situation that's happening to the poorest and African-American uh, population. So I, I could see where that seems like fertile territory to sort of explore those, you know, those tensions. But I don't I don't know how effectively they've done it so mm. far. Um, and I don't, I don't know if other people have a different opinion on that. 
I don't know. It kind of it kind of seemed like you kind of catch it on the edges. Yeah. But it, it doesn't seem like much of a, a real focus as much as some other things that I didn't think were as interesting. I have a question about a choice that was made by the filmmakers in this documentary. Laura, what do you think of the choice to show prolonged shots of the bodies of the dead children in this story? Um, I was conflicted on this. Um, Again, I sort of, you know, on one hand, I was like, why did they need to do this? I'm like, it's again, it goes back to the like, we got all this information and we're going to use every bit of information that we got to show you how much information we have. So I was like, why? Because it was it was kind of hard. I mean, but then I was like, well, maybe we need to see this. Maybe we need to see these these awful images so that we can really understand the reactions of the people in this community when this was happening, when you start to see sort of that rise in the level of outrage when people don't really perceive that the police are doing enough and that this is being taken seriously. But I was I was pretty surprised in the beginning because I know, you know, other things we've watched, we've seen, you know, we've seen pictures of bodies, but children, I feel like are usually off limits. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, I, I feel like children usually are given a little bit of different treatment. So I was surprised um, to see them. I was surprised. I'll tell you, I mean, I do think it's important to see images of what happened in a lot of cases, right? You know, And you shouldn't look away. The thing that really surprised me was the juxtaposition of the long, I mean, there are relatively long shots of those photos that included the faces of the kids in, in you know, plain view. And mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of documentaries that have done that treatment where it's important to see the thing and they show you the thing, but they find a way to do it where you get the impact of it uh, fully without the thing I think the thing that maybe like really struck me was that there would be an interview with like a victim's brother or friend or parent and then you'd see the body of that kid with the face and it was just it felt like I don't know I, I kept wondering if it were a different case would we have seen that and I understand the imagery here was part of the case so I also had conflicted feelings about it Kevin did that strike you at all yeah I guess I'm with you guys I, I I'm not the right person to ask um, as a you know crime reporter thinking about all the content that you want to get but you have to consider the audience's uh, feelings and you know what they will find shocking what they'd be comfortable with. so Or the subjects in the film, like interviewing, like doing contemporary interviews with mm-hmm. family members of victims and then showing the bodies of those victims. I mean, that yeah. was what I kept thinking about was, you know, as would the mother of that child watching this then want to see her dead child's body yeah, right. in the film? Yeah. I don't know. There was something about it that, that just landed a little weird with me. Um, but Laura, we have actually, as I mentioned, done two other stories about the Atlanta child murders in the last year. Except, and I think this one almost tracks more with the Mindhunter version of the Atlanta serial killings mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the, the characters that we actually see, that group of women who created that coalition. Um, you know, one of them was actually fictionally represented in Mindhunter, very mm-hmm. accurately, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. um, what did you think of actually seeing some of the real characters in this story, in this documentary, as opposed to either the fictionalized versions or the sort of hearing about them in a podcast? I liked seeing the people in person, and I liked seeing, you know, what was actually happening at the time and seeing the actual news footage. So, you know, we, you know, there is one thing about listening to something. It's like when you listen to a book and you always imagine in your head what you think the characters look like and you have your sort of own version of things. And then, you know, in this, I think actually having, you know, I just wish it had slowed down a little bit so I had more time to take in the different people that I was seeing. 
um, so I could, you know, kind of follow some of these characters a little bit more closely because I thought we had great access to family members and, you know, former investigators, and they had a lot of great old news footage that was used. So for me, that really helped sort of give a a more well-rounded, you know, version of the story. But it just, again, I, I keep repeating myself, but it just, there was like so much of it that I still... I just, I can't, I'm in pandemic mode. I can't absorb things this quickly. So I I like was like, I need a little more time to understand what's happening here. I'm curious, Toby, the Wayne Williams controversy, the controversy over whether or not he's the guy. They sort of approach that from a couple different angles in this documentary. What do you think about the community's reaction and even in the present day to whether or not Wayne Williams is the one that killed some or all of these kids? I don't know. I, I get why people would. I mean, he really, he was only convicted for, for two of the murders and they seem quite different than the majority of what happened. So I, I think at a minimum, the idea that you wouldn't want to get more closure for all these murdered kids other than, well, we convicted him on these other two things. So we'll just pin the rest of them on them and, and we're good. Seems bizarre and unacceptable. You know, there's such sort of unanimity. I, one of the things I was struck at is the scene in the church where, you know, they pipe Wayne Williams in to talk. First of all, you know, uh, I guess the message I really want to say is, is, is to the families that my, my heart goes out to you because I, I can't imagine what it's like to go all these years about being And alive. then when it's over, like the guy is kind of running it says, you know, a show of hands, you know, who thinks that Wayne Williams isn't responsible for any of this stuff? And, you know, most people raise their hands and then might be, you're not sure. And a few more people raise their hands and then think he definitely is responsible for all this stuff. And it's like the only white guy in the room is the only person who raises his hand and says, he's a guy, he's definitely responsible. When there's that kind of unanimity, I think you just got it. You got to think, why would all these people who are a lot closer to it than I am, who've, you know, were invested at the time, are invested in it enough 40 years later to be a part of this. You know, why is there that unanimity that there's something else going on? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily doubt that Wayne Williams might have killed those two people, but the fact that there wasn't more of an effort made to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was responsible for the other ones... It's hard to it's hard to understand. It's especially hard to understand. And the thing that, you know, maybe a detail that I knew and had forgotten was that more than one of the victims had also been to this other guy's house who was a known pedophile. And this guy was on camera talking about his sexual relationship with these victims. And they were like 10, 11, 12, 13 yeah. years old. And he was like this old man. And it's like, that was not a sexual relationship. That was abuse. Um, and... You know, that more than one of the victims was known to interact with this other person. It's like, of course there's mistrust at the Wayne Williams thing. And it's funny because you can be told that in a podcast. It's different when you see that interview on camera. Right, Kevin? Oh, yeah. And, you know, there certainly was a lot of talk about uh, the influence of the Klan. Atlanta as a city, you know, they'll tell you when you come to Atlanta, Atlanta's the city too busy to hate. But go 15 minutes outside of Atlanta. And you will see, especially back then, the Confederate flags still flying, the Confederate symbols still around. Um, you know, I think it's part of like you know when we get this historical perspective, 
you know, you can talk about, oh, yeah, you know, the city's too busy to hate. And here's the reality of that. Here's what was good. Here was what was bad. And, you know, and you do have some clan members who, you know, are in the to, police department. Uh, well, who also <laughs> claim to have been responsible for some of the murders. Yeah. But of course, they're, they have not been charged. Yeah. So while it's hard to say whether the Klan was actually involved or whether it was the braggadocious nature of someone trying to take credit for something because they hate anyway, it colors the whole thing, especially for people of that community. Hmm. So just the fact that the Klan is around it is going to like sow doubt in the minds of many of the people that the Klan has something to do with it. I mean, I agree that there seems to be a solid evidence that Wayne Williams is responsible for at least those two killings. Fiber evidence, DNA evidence. Being was, super creepy. Being super creepy. That's not, you know. It's I, not evidence. But, you know, they catch him pulling away from the bridge right yeah. after they hear a splash. You know, all, all those other things. But, you know, when you look back at all the different victims and the ones who were dumped in the woods and the ones dumped in the river and the ones that were left in the... Killed in different ways. Uh, Someone were stabbed and yep. strangled. You know, it just is, it just doesn't seem like it's one killer just based on what you see. You know, I used to like laugh about the premise of the Atlanta Monster podcast mm. that we're going to investigate a murder that's you know already been closed. Yeah, but yeah, I think you know I agree. There is more to the mystery here, mm. and I'd like to see what's that. Now, let's talk about you know the scene in the church where a lot of you know the the locals you know think that Wayne Williams had. Nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit of the O.J. Simpson case where racial divides are shown in the way they view the crime. Do you believe that Wayne Williams had involvement in killing any or all no. of these children no. and adults? Hold on. Hold on. Raise your hand. You believe he did not have any involvement at all in this? Raise your hand. Put your hand down. You know, is it motivated by race or is it shaped by race? Mm. Because I think it's very rare that you have family members of victims who don't want to believe the, the report that this is the person that's responsible and this is the person we're punishing. Yeah. Now, Laura, one thing that I think is shaped by race and is really disgusting is the way that law enforcement and the media blame parents of victims for being, quote, irresponsible or whatever uh, when their kids would go missing and be murdered. And all the campaigns around it, the media campaigns around it, like, you know, and I remember, Kevin, you remember, it's 10 o'clock, you know, where your children are kind of thing, um, sort of frames it. And then this community especially frames black parents as being negligent and, you know, letting their kids run free. I mean, they, they call some of the victims street kids. They had all these sort of epithets for victims hustlers. and their families. Hustlers. So-called street kids have been most vulnerable. Poor black children from one-parent homes, out on their own, hustling pocket money. Who were the victims? Most of the victims were products of broken homes. They were street kids. I don't agree with that. I know Yusef Bell wasn't. He was a smart kid. Meanwhile, these are just kids who are riding their bikes and going to the arcade like any other kids in the world do. What do you think of that aspect of the of the story, Laura? Um, that's where I started to have some rage, Rebecca. 
Um, I there was a, a specific part where they they almost really I felt like were really victim blaming these children, and they were talking about a, a couple of the children that had gone to the pedophile's house, and they were like you know insinuating that these kids were up to stuff, and they, they, you know like you know they they kind of had it coming, or you know, and I was just listening to this, and I was just getting so angry. They were victims of a predator. That's what they were up to. Is they yeah. were being victims of a predator. Like yeah. most of these children had difficult home lives, single parents situations the one that was really hard to listen to his situation you know there was like the the detective talking there was just like the mattress in the floor and the mother was like you know working as a prostitute and would go buy him his mcdonald's every day before she went off to um you know do some tricks but at the same time that kind of like when you're listening to that from the people in authority it's like that's like their way to sort of absolve themselves from doing anything about it and I was just right. getting so fucking angry listening to that so anyway that's what I have to say about that but when we went from that to then seeing the community really mobilize and rally to demand some action you know that was that was good to say so Toby do you think there's a real mystery here about Wayne Williams and whether or not he was perpetrator do you think this is worth reinvestigating and looking into yeah I think so I mean I I don't think there's any reason to believe that he was responsible for all of them if there is they haven't shown it right Right, right. what about you Laura you think the mystery continues in the Atlanta child murders case I think it continues but at this point I guess the question is are they going to find any new information is somebody going to finally be willing to come forward all these years later is there anybody left who is able to come forward at this point you know I agree and I have to say I think that the disservice that Atlanta Monster did to this story was casting doubt on the conviction in such a silly way, you know, throwing dummies over the bridge and sort of the the protracted phone calls with Williams and the attempting to get him in prison, all that stuff. Like it, it cast a silliness on it that took away from some of the issues I think this documentary is bringing to the, to the story and casting doubt on that conviction. So, all right. Well, that being said, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Atlanta's Missing and Murdered on HBO? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary? Um, I'm going to give a thumbs up. It's not like a super enthusiastic thumbs up, but I think that there are some flaws to this documentary. Um, I think they tried to ram a lot of information into sort of a narrow window of time. But it is an interesting case. I think it's going to be interesting. We've only watched the first two episodes. So I think, you know, based on that, I will keep watching to see what happens next and see, you know, are there going to be some new revelations in this case? So I think it's it's definitely a good story. Um, it's not perfect, but it's worth watching. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Atlanta's Missing and Murdered on HBO? Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. I, I agree with Laura. It's not it's not perfect, but I, I do think it raises some interesting questions. I, I mean, I think it's it's generally well done, but, it, but you know, it's dark like a lot of stuff we do, but. I know I know some people aren't in the mindset for wanting to watch something dark right now and and this is definitely in that in that mode. Kevin, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Atlanta's Missing and Murdered? I'm a thumbs up. Uh, you know, granted, we're halfway through. So when we do these kinds of reviews, sometimes it's, you know, a little bit of an asterisk next to it. But I think that folks should get in on it and finish it up. The uh, storytelling is a bit flawed. I think they've got a lot of information and a lot of people and they're trying to be very ambitious with it. I'm afraid they might lose the narrative thread Mm. for people to understand. Uh, And, you know, I want to see where they go with Wayne Williams. Are they going to try to say that he did none of these? Are they going to try to say there was one other person instead of or with who did that? It just feels like there are so many different cases, different perpetrators, 
that it's probably multiple people whose all their crimes were either they were either copycats or they got caught up together or or whatever. But it certainly doesn't seem like it's just this one guy. Yeah, I'm really actually intrigued by the mystery that they're unspooling here. I really am in a way that I haven't been with other previous treatments of this. And I think that, you know, the fictionalized version that we see of this in Mindhunter really points to the flaws of profiling in the missteps taken in investigating this case. You know, we do see in the documentary, they talk a lot about how, like, a white person couldn't have gone into the neighborhood. And then you see the people in the community saying, like, white people came here all the time. What are you talking about? That was played out a little bit in Mindhunter, and that's here, too. But Mindhunter really didn't get into whether or not, you know, they got the right guy or not. And, of course, Atlanta Monster went a little too far in that direction in a way that became silly. And I think this is striking a nice balance in the mystery component of it. So for that, I'm giving it a thumbs up. I agree with my fellow panelists. The storytelling could be tighter. I do have very mixed feelings about some of the imagery in the documentary that I have just questions about. If I ever get the chance to interview the director of it, I will ask those questions. But in the absence of that, I'll just say I have questions. So thumbs up for me. Not huge, but thumbs up nonetheless. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call The crime Crime of of the week. The week. It was a crisis at the home of 93-year-old Olive Veronese. The Pennsylvania woman in self-isolation put a sign in the window pleading for help from friends and neighbors. It said, I need more beer. The photo of Olive smiling with her sign and a can of Coors Light went viral. After seeing the post, the folks at Molson Coors made a no-contact delivery, dropping off 10 cases of mountain cold refreshment on Olive's porch. The 93-year-old says she has one beer a day. Quote, she says, it has vitamins in it. We're all glad (laughs) Olive got a four-month supply of Coors Light and not, you know, that Mexican beer that you put the lime wedge in. So, panel, even in a pandemic, the world cannot ignore a 93-year-old woman's cries for beer. If you were 93 and in self-isolation, what would you ask the world to bring to you? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Um, I think I would go for a personal masseuse and kittens, like more than one kittens. Um, mm-hmm. like if you're maybe 93, a cup- you have plenty of kittens in there. I, I might that. need more, though. I want, want some like little ones because that would help pass the time. But I would also, yeah, it's a two-pronged approach. I just Something tells me Laura's going to be getting some more kittens. I, I just feel it in my bones. Mm. Toby Ball, what about you? If you were 93 and you wanted to put a sign in your window asking for one provision, what would it be? It wouldn't be veggie burgers. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know what it would be? Just know what it wouldn't be, Toby. That is so on brand, Toby Ball. Kevin Flynn, what about you? If I'm 93 mm-hmm. and the world's going to give me what I want, mm-hmm. I'm going to say, bring me a 25-year-old. I want to go out like Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> what would I ask for, Kevin? You would ask- uh, A sleeve of frozen Thin Mints. That's, that's right. what I would ask for. And uh, Hendrix. <laughs> definitely some Hendrix. All right, Laura Bricker, we should probably end on that note. But before we do, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? Uh, we do. So we have a Listener Cat of the Week. But first, I would like to encourage everybody, if you hadn't, have not looked up Betty the Weather Cat, out in Indiana, you need to totally go see Betty the Weather Cat. But this week, Amy Reese has submitted- A cat named, it's actually a little kitten. It's very cute. A little gray kitten, Kirby. She says, my mom is currently fostering her for a local animal shelter. She has some severe neurological problems and is currently going to PT a couple times a month to help her relearn how to get around without falling over. Because 
Here it comes. She was brought into the shelter after someone found her inside the recycling plant after she had gone through several of the machines. Oh, my goodness. Kirby. Hence hence the name Kirby, like curbside recycling. Um, She is making (laughs) progress and will hopefully be up for adoption if the shelter reopens. Poor Kirby. You need to go get that cat, Laura Bricker. All right, Laura, if folks want to send you... Did you you... get Stampy at the post office? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, she lives like two houses down from the post office, yes. (laughs) All right, Laura Bricker, folks want to send you their nominations for Cat of the Week, and I encourage them to send their dogs to be Cat of the Week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you and tell you all the recipes that are delicious that you can make with those disgusting meatless burgers. How can they find you on Twitter? They're not disgusting. I'm just tired of them. <laughs> uh, they can find me <laughs> at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and tell you that you should not admonish me when I eat an entire sleeve of frozen Thin Mints from the freezer, which you have never done, to be no, fair. No, because I'm doing the tag along. How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you strenuously to join our amazing Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We've got all sorts of great video and other fun content there and a lot of awesome people. We also have a regular old Facebook page. You can follow that too. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get so much stuff. Kevin's video cocktail parties, the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's multi-part documentary, Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stand Meredith Plunkett. And this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our Hampshire basement, where we bathe with a transistor radio perched at the edge of our tub. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. The two-part adaptation of The Pale Horse from BBC One and Amazon Prime veers from Agatha Christie's novel, keeping its... Okay, I have to read the whole thing. Excuse you stop playing with that? It's so loud. (laughs) Just put the GoPro away. Put the GoPro away. Put it away. Put it away. Put it down. Put it down. (laughs) Rip it out of your hands and throw it against the wall. Just can you push? Put it down. Can you just put it down? I muted it. it. (laughs) Okay. Beep. If that thing beeps while I'm talking, I'm gonna (laughs) reach over there and strangle you like a fortune teller from a shitty Agatha Christie adaptation. Partners in crime media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.